Today's episode is brought to you by Bremont, over-engineered watches for professionals. In the last few years, Bremont has taken over as the fighter pilot's watch. Their combination of precision, quality, and customer service is unmatched. You can see all of their watches by going to bremont.com. Hi, you're listening to the Professionals Playbook. My name is Justin Lee. I'm an F-35 fighter pilot for the Air Force. My goal for this podcast is to have world-class experts share their story along with their hard-earned insights. Often these people are so busy perfecting their craft, they don't have a chance to pass along their lessons learned. Hopefully you can take away some actionable advice and motivation and see what it takes to become the best in the world. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Justin Fighterpot. I've also started a monthly newsletter where I send out a few useful or insightful things that I've found over the month. You can sign up by going to professionalsplaybook.com and clicking on the red subscribe button. My guest today is Matt Hall, Australia's top aviator. He has logged more than 6,000 hours in various aircraft, including the F-18 Hornet and the F-15 Strike Eagle. He is a decorated wing commander in the Australian Air Force, a fighter combat instructor, and in 1997 was named Fighter Pilot of the Year. Matt has also competed on the international level in aerobatics, winning the Australian Advanced Aerobatics Championship and finished first in freestyle and second overall in the unlimited category. For the last 10 years, Matt has been flying at the pinnacle of aviation racing, the Red Bull Air Race Series. He is one of the top pilots, coming in second overall a record three times. With the final Red Bull race ever coming up, Matt is in second place with a chance to win the championship. Here's a brief highlight from our conversation today. Visualization, absolutely essential. Uh, You've got to visualize both how you do something But you also have to visualize yourself being successful, which is more the self-talk side of things as well. It's just making sure that you you back yourself and say, I I have put in the effort. I am good enough to win. And when I do win, it's not going to be a surprise to me. Because if you're you're not confident that you can win, every time you're getting close, you're going to get nervous that I'm not sure I'm ready for this. What what if, what if, what if you come out at the moment? If you visualize the fact and self-talk that you are good enough to, to win, as you're getting closer, you shrug your shoulders and go, yep, as planned. What struck me most about Matt was his system's approach to winning. He has merged the training he did in the Air Force with an Olympic athlete's mindset. Every aspect of his life has been optimized so that on race day, he can fly as fast as possible. In our conversation, we talk about what it's like to pull 12 Gs, the time his wing hit the ocean during a race, his sports psychology training, and more. Now, without further ado... Matt Hall. Hey, Matt, what's going on? Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, no problems at all. It's good to be on it. So can you talk about where your passion for aviation started and how that led up to a career in the Air Force? Yeah, my um, my aviation started from uh, childhood, like my passion for it. Uh, my my dad uh, was a, uh, a pilot um, flying, um, you know, basically, um, you know, general aviation aircraft and uh, mainly uh, towing gliders in a, initially in an Oster and then in a Pawnee on weekends um and uh i used to hang out at the airfield uh, every time he was out there and be uh riding along in the in the in the seat next to him in the oster or sitting in the um in the hopper in the pawnee um, just going up and down towing gliders and and then uh, that ultimately led to my dad learning to fly gliders and then i'd just be in the back seat of a blanik or something like that going around and around in circles um so it was it was something that uh, you know i just i just loved flying and uh, i'm not sure what it was about flying you know whether it was the freedom whether it was the the three-dimensional control or the the view or the feeling it's just you know everything all of the above just uh, i just knew that that was um that was exactly where i wanted to be um all the time so for me i don't actually remember making a decision that i want to be a pilot when i grow up it was um it was it was just a, a natural conclusion. It's you know, it's like uh, it's like you know, asking someone that doesn't fly you, when did you decide that you were going to get a, a driver's license one day? It's just it's just an assumption you have. And so, what led to you wanting to fly in the military as opposed to going and doing stunt flying or becoming a commercial pilot? Um, there was there was a lot of there's a lot of bits to it. And I guess when you're sort of when you're growing up uh, in your teens, you you kind of um, you know, your left and right of arc of what you want to do is, um, you know, is fairly loose. So, you know, you'll have all that, you have dreams about, you know, the ultimate position you want to be in, but then, you know, you'll have this, um, this inner voice telling you, um, that 
what you can't do. Yeah, you know, you're not good enough, or you haven't got enough money, or anything like this. So, um, you know, I used to, you know, I used to see the fighters. I grew up, I grew up near a fighter base in Australia, and I used to see the fighters flying around, and thought, wow, that that would that would be the ultimate type of flying for sure. But um, you know, I'm, you know, that you have to be superhuman to fly in those things. You don't, you have to be, um, you know, only the lucky few get to do that. And um, you know, I, I I did a little bit of experimenting with the um, with you know the in my head about the wouldn't it be amazing to do it but um i just kept running into barriers mentally um saying i couldn't do it and that was that was also reinforced by people around me as well so you know there's no way you could do that and you sort of as a teenager you tend to start believing uh, what those around you are telling you so uh, i was i was then sort of thinking oh okay i guess i can become a um crop duster pilot or a or an airline pilot etc so i started my own flying training but um Flying training can be expensive, and to go and get my commercial license, it was it was going to be cost prohibitive. And until I'd done years and years and years of work somewhere else to get enough money to pay for my flying, and and all of a sudden I could see my dream job of flying for a career slipping away because um, you know I was mapping out this plan that I'll go and work as a public servant, uh, doing this and that for up to 10 years to save enough money to then go and do my commercial pilot's license. And then when you're a teenager thinking that's going to be heavy in your mid-20s before you even start, it's um, it's soul-destroying. And I ended up I ended up meeting a uh, an old um, an old World War II Spitfire pilot and um, he was telling me all of his stories about flying Spitfires and, you know, it's just amazing about what he was saying. And, and he said to me uh, he just wishes that he was – he wasn't born when he was because he had – much rather have flown supersonic jet fighters than Spitfires, and um, and he he said he'd give anything to be in my shoes so we could go and throw an application in the Air Force and go and go and fly fighters and and I realised that um, you know this guy was saying he wanted to be exactly where I was, and I was I was where I was, but I wasn't prepared to um, to go and give it a go and give it a crack um, because I'd made an assumption based on other people's opinions that I couldn't do it anyway, so. It was the ultimate type of flying I wanted to do. I wasn't prepared to have, even have a go at it because I'd already been told I'd, you know, I, I couldn't do it. So I thought, well, I'd rather than spend the rest of my life wondering if I could have, I might as well find out for sure and you know, go ahead and fail at, at, at trying to do it. But at least I then know, as it turned out, I didn't fail at it. So it's a good lesson in life to um, to um, not be scared of failure and to um, to confirm you can't do something by failing rather than spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have. And then once you got to the military, you obviously did really well in uh, in pilot training. Can you talk briefly over the highlights of your career and if there are any stories that that stand out? Yeah, I um I did I did quite well on, on my pilot training. I actually um I quite enjoyed my pilot training. I was, I was one of the I guess you know, when you talk to people afterwards um, from military pilot training, you realise that I was I was um, one of the few who actually enjoyed it. Everyone else is uh, stressed out. On, uh, on military flight school, but um, I, I really enjoyed it, and I think the reason I enjoyed it was that I put a lot of a lot of effort in, um, so that when I got to the flying part of the course, I was so ready it wasn't funny, and um, and it was like everything was happening in slow motion as I was doing it because I'd put so much so much effort in on the ground getting ready for the flight. So uh, I looked at it at the, uh, the the side of things. I was flying I was flying planes as a teenager that that people went to air shows um, to watch. So every time I strapped a plane on, I'd be like, wow, how good is this? I'm flying in a plane that, yeah, I used to go to air shows and watch. So this is awesome. And then everything generally went pretty well on the flying side of things because I'd uh, I'd put so much effort in. And I continued with that mindset right through my career, in fact, all the way through to what I do now, that um, you know, the, hard, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And if you're doing what you love doing, the way to the way to make sure that you always love doing it is to make sure that it goes perfectly when you're doing it. And the only way to make sure it goes perfectly when you do it is for from doing a whole heap of prior preparation and planning um, before you get anywhere near an aircraft. And so you you had a pretty unique career in the military in that you went and did an exchange tour over here flying strike eagles and you actually deployed to combat. Can you talk to that? Yeah. Um yeah, so there's in the military. There's always um, generally always some exchange programs going on. You know, whether it's uh, guys, uh, our air force we have F-18s at the moment and transition to F-35s. But there's there'll be um, 
people coming off the Hornet throughout my timeline now going to um, going to the US Navy or going to the US Marines to fly Hornets. So fairly fairly easy exchange program in that regard, and that's that's really just to cross pollinate between you know the um, the different militaries to make sure that we're all operating our aircraft to best practice. There's also an exchange program to the United States Air Force from our Air Force. Now, because the Australian Air Force, we fly an aircraft that was predominantly designed as a Navy uh, aircraft and the USAF don't use the F-18. Um, that exchange involves flying a different type of aircraft. And the exchange is still worthwhile, though, because it's not just about how you're operating the particular airframe. It's also about what tactics are you using with the weapon systems and the weapon systems are common across the board. So after I did our own, um, you know, I guess you call it top gun school, you know, uh, weapons course, um, I was then selected to go to the U S for a three year tour to fly the F 15, a strike Eagle, which you know, is a phenomenal aircraft actually. And um, I, I had to do a front seat conversion onto that aircraft and then a, um, and then a rear seat conversion because it's a two seater with a, Wizzo, and I was um, I was there as an instructor to teach either pilots to fly it, in which case I had to simulate being a Wizzo, or I had to teach Wizzos to fly it, in which case I had to know what they were doing. But uh, yeah, when I got there, it was um, I arrived in America in December of two thousand one, which was you know only only a few months after the nine eleven uh, events, and uh, the the squadron and the uh, the base were uh, you know basically in pretty tight lockdown with. Um, an unknown short-term future about you know where they were going or what they were doing. And as it turned out, just over a year after my arrival, you know, I just basically finished my conversion onto the aircraft and was doing my instructor ratings. The two squadrons on the base deployed to the Middle East for Operation Iraqi Freedom, and uh, it wasn't my squadron that was deployed. I was in a I was in a training unit for training pilots, but uh, they needed some supplementary aircrew, and uh, they they took me along. In the um, in the rockets, and um, I uh, ended up in the Middle East doing um, combat operations um, in an F-15 Strike Eagle uh, in American squadron. It was quite a quite a bizarre situation to find myself. Yeah, that is. What what kind of lessons learned did you come back to Australia with being in combat, and then also being attached to a to a squadron that's in a different country? Oh yeah, the lessons. Um, yeah, the, the lessons are wide ranging from you. Yeah, um, how to how to use uh, weapon systems a little bit more precisely? We we were using in the in the Eagle. We were using systems that were only still being talked about in Australia that we ultimately did get. Um, but it, it meant that I could come home with um, with some fairly good experiences on on the systems themselves, like um, night vision goggles. We were you know I was in charge of um, of uh, teaching air crew to use night vision goggles in Australia because I'd use them in um, in combat. They'd use them on the F-15. Same with the Link 16, you know, where we're linking um, linking aircraft with information so you can see what every other aircraft is doing inside your own cockpit, and we brought that onto the Hornet as well. So there was how to use those types of systems. There was um, you know, an immense amount of knowledge you get from flying combat operations that, uh, you know, when you've, you've, um, you train and you train and you train and you do a lot of simulations and everything, but, you know, it's, uh, it's never it, – it's – it's funny. It's it's almost exactly the same as training when you're in combat, but it's so much different at the same time. To you know, um, everything worked exactly as planned, but when you actually see around, you know, traces coming at you from um, from AAA, it's like, well, okay, well, that's what it really looks like. You know, I've only I've only talked about it or pretended in the sim, but that's what that's what a missile that's what a missile with a missile time constant looks like when it's uh, when it's engaged you. Um, you get to see these things, and they're 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 memories and things that you can you can try and pass on to people. Uh, as best as possible, but until you see it, um, you know, you don't you don't know how you're going to react personally. You don't know how um, you know how it's actually going to look. How you're going to judge the um, you know um, you know three seconds to impact of a missile approaching you, etc. So uh, all those little things, um, they're all they're all amazing lessons that you try and pass on as a fighter pilot to uh, to the junior guys and and even senior guys who didn't have that experience. But uh, overall, the, you know, the biggest I guess the biggest thing for me was that um, you know Australians and Americans and um, People around the world, we're we're all we're all the same. You know, we're ninety nine percent of um of the people around are, have the same same uh, personality. We want to get in there. We want to fly planes. We want to do our best, and um and uh, you just get just get in there and try your hardest. Yeah, I remember flying in combat. It was just a surreal feeling. It's almost like living a dream that you've had hundreds of times over because you train so much. 
But uh, so what led you from flying for the military to deciding that you wanted to, to race planes for a living? It was, uh, I was a fairly young um, fighter pilot, so I didn't go through um, any academy or anything like that. I, I, I joined and started flying uh, as a teenager, which um, in Australia, we're fairly unique that you're allowed to do that. You know, I, how old was I? I was probably 30, um, 31 years old when I was flying the F-15 in combat operations. And then I was, I was uh, promoted to a major while I was in, in uh, America and then uh, came back to Australia and I was promoted to, to a lieutenant colonel. And I was still only about um, 34 years old. And I started looking around going, man, I've, I've flown Hornets, you know, about 2,000 hours on Hornets. I've been to weapons school on them. I've, I've uh, been on exchange program, flown F-15s, been in combat operations, now a lieutenant colonel, which we call a wing commander. And um, I could also see a, a massive desk job approaching in the future. And I sort of thought, you know, there's, I'm not, I'm not done with my flying yet. I've, I'm running out of things to do in the in the jets apart from yeah, just always continuing to push myself and and help people, which is a, an admirable thing to be doing. But I wanted to challenge and test myself a bit more on the side. So I actually started doing aerobatic competitions on weekends just so that I could challenge myself in aviation while almost treating the fighter flying like a like a job instead of a passion and re re. Uh, engaging in a new aviation passion, which was uh, competition aerobatics. And I set myself a bit of a target that I'd love to be world aerobatic champion or you know, at least be able to compete in the world aerobatic championships. And that was just before Red Bull Air Race came along. And when it popped up, you know, I'd already had this mindset of I'm going to go and keep my day job as a fighter pilot, but fly on weekends and take leave when required to go and do aerobatic competitions. And then the air race popped up as something that just suited everything I did. You know, it was, um, it was flying aerobatic type planes with high G and you know, requiring absolute precision to do it, but it was also um, low level, high speed competition, which you know, generates that little bit of stress in your life, which is, um, you know, which is you know, something that you know, fighter pilots love. Is you know, high pressure environments that's where we excel. And you know, we, we looked at that sport and thought it's almost like this sport's been designed for my personality. And um, and so uh, we just got chatting with. Um, with the the managers of the of the air race and and uh, it turned out they were they were somewhat interested in my my type of person as well so yeah you know, a younger person that are coming out of the military rather than just an air well, not just but rather than an airline pilot that was doing aerobatics on the weekend so they took a bit of a leap of faith in me to to um to invest some some time and effort into some training for me to see how i went so it was just a it was about a two-year process um but it was um, yeah, a, fan, a fantastic thing to do, and that, as I've I've said quite a few times, that apart from the uh, the fighter pilots that walked on the moon, I'm probably one of the luckiest uh, retired fighter pilots in the world. So, can you talk about how difficult was that transition to go from being a military pilot to flying and learning aerobatics to becoming a, a race pilot? Um, I guess the transition there's a lot of aspects to it, and there's I guess there's a flying transition which is learning how to put. Um, these aerobatic planes in the right position, which you know, it's just that's just that's just repetition. You know, they still fly the same. Uh, in some ways, the flying was a lot easier because you weren't operating system, you know, complex systems. It was it's purely seat of the pants flying, which is what I've always loved. You know, the, some of the harder parts though were um, were becoming an international business manager, you know, a, a fatigue manager, an expert in fatigue management. And I didn't see those things as being big challenges for me because you know as a as a senior military officer at that time, and so well, you know, I've been well well groomed in management and um, you know, fatigue management. I've always, I've done a lot of travel and I've done a lot of night ops and that sort of stuff. So it, was, it sort of caught me by surprise because in the military, I was used to um, to management of someone else's budget and people that were already in a system and well motivated and knew their jobs, and and, and it really was just just management. Whereas when I started my racing business, you know, it was my money I had to control and there wasn't endless funds. And I had to then find and groom and train my own team, which was, um, you know, took a lot longer than I was expecting it to. And uh, on the fatigue side, what, what really caught me out was, um, was the amount of travel that I'd have to be doing. So as I said, you know, I, was, I was used to traveling in the military, but, you know, you'd, you'd travel somewhere, you know, 
if you're going overseas, you'd be gone for probably about four to five weeks and then come home as a minimum, sometimes, you know, two, three months or more. Uh, whereas in the race, you go overseas for one week and then come home again. And from Australia, everywhere is on the other side of the world, effectively. So, um, so uh, it really, it really affected my, um, my personality and my, my focus levels and my health with doing all that travel. But then, you know, it's a, there's nothing in the world like flying to the other side of the world. It takes 40 hours. Then you get in a plane and fly around at 30 feet at 12 G the very next day. It's a, it's a whole new level of uh, fatigue management and, con- and required concentration to be able to do that safely. What are some things that you learned to help reduce the fatigue and to reduce the the jet lag? Um, yeah, everyone has their own their own way of doing it, and you know, initially because I was you know I was new to it, I did a lot of reading and tried other people's techniques, and um, and you know the, the technique that I was doing and which ultimately failed for me was the whole process of trying to get yourself onto a time zone um, early and then. And then not going to bed until until it's proper bedtime. And what I found that did, especially when you put competition into the mix, is that um, you've got to accept that if you're in a stressful environment, getting a good night's sleep is is um, is not guaranteed. Uh, you know, you I think everyone does it. If no matter what you're in, you know, from school kids with exams and everything, if you you, know, you wake up at that um, the dark hour, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning. And if your brain snaps into where am I and what have I got on tomorrow and it's a high-pressure environment, the chances of you going back to sleep are pretty low. So you have to work on that aspect of it. But but what it means is that you've got to accept that the chances of getting a good night's sleep in those environments is is lower than normal. So it means that you need to bank as much sleep as you can early on. So what I was trying to do was go, right, I'm getting on an airline at uh, 7 p.m. at night, you know, 7, 7 p.m., and um, I'm flying to Europe, um, and it's currently 9 o'clock in the morning in Europe when I'm getting on this flight. So I'll then try and stay awake for 12 hours on the first flight to try and get myself in time zone for Europe. I'd get super tired. I'd stay up. I'd watch movies. I'd read books, et cetera. And then by the time I got to the destination, I'd, I'd go, right, I'm going to try and fall asleep now. But now it's, um, now it's uh, 6 o'clock in the morning Australia time, and I just couldn't sleep. So I ended up starting my deficit way, 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 you know, getting there like with a deficit already, knowing that I'm probably not going to get that much sleep. So what I do now is I just I concentrate on getting as much sleep as I can. So uh, whenever I've got a moment to rest, I do, uh, no matter what time of day it is. If I'm getting on an airline and it's two o'clock in the afternoon, I'll try and sleep straight away and see how much I get. And then when I wake up, I'll do something. But if I'm at all tired, I'll try and catch a nap, even if it's only for half an hour. Just try and get as much much sleep into me as possible because then when you get to your destination, you just stay busy and you generally stay awake during the day and the key is getting sleep at night. And you may not get all the sleep you need, but if you've got there well rested, that's the key. That's that's some good advice. I've, I've never heard that. I've always heard try to get onto the time zone that you're going to. How many days are you in these locations before you're headed back? Generally about eight days. So um, you know, once again, the, the old... Um, the old the old method was, I think, always based around spending two, three weeks away because uh, they talk about, you know, it takes about an hour per, uh, one day per hour or one day per two hours of time zone change to get in the zone. Um, I just didn't have that amount of luxury to do so. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, being a short, sharp trip like that, but a short, sharp trip that requires an immense amount of physical load and mental load. Um, the only way to do it is just to maintain a, a full bucket of, of sleep, and then you, and then over the week you just have to slowly accept you're going to be pouring out, um, pouring out that bucket uh, where you need it, but the, but not empty it before you get to race day. So, can you talk to those eight days and what it's like to to actually race on the course? Yeah, so um, you know, a, a typical uh, typical event will have me arriving on site, say on a Monday. Um, I will. Um, yeah, really. Then it's just uh, get organised. You know, the first the first key for me when I get to um, get to the race is get organised. Um, yeah, unpack my bags, put everything in a drawer, just so that you know, my my hotel room is my home, and I feel I feel like I know where everything is, and I and I can I can rest there. So set it up, you know, so it's absolutely perfect in the hotel room. Um, I'll then I'll then generally will try and stay up and have a normal meal with the team um, who's already been there working on the plane. But I'll probably try and you know, probably look to get into bed by about 7 p.m. Uh, just so that I can start getting as much sleep as possible. 
typically, you know, waking up at uh, two or three o'clock in the morning, but you know, just just lying in bed, resting. Uh, even if I'm not sleeping, uh, you know, they always say, "Oh, just get up if you're not sleeping." I'm exactly opposite now. Just lie in bed because you may doze. Worst case scenario, you're resting and your body is still getting value out of resting rather than getting up and burning energy. I'll then always exercise every morning. So a low energy exercise and typically outdoors in the morning because that'll reset your body to go, hey, I'm seeing the sunrise or I'm seeing the early morning sun. I'm hearing birds. I'm seeing grass and blue sky. Okay, it's daytime. It's time to get into it and just get the body working. The Tuesday is typically just going and doing media um, and looking over the aircraft, uh, making sure you know I get the hangar set up because we take our own hangar everywhere and get that all set up. So that's my office that uh, looks identical to every other race we do. Um, and then Tuesday is a similar routine, probably into bed by about 8 p.m. to get as much sleep as, po- sleep as possible. Wednesday, I'm now getting into a routine. Typically, typically I find the third day on site is my worst day for fatigue because your timeline is out. And you've also probably been not getting as much sleep as you need because of early wake-ups. But you know that in my mind, I know third day, Wednesday is the hardest uh, and everything's going to get better from there. So it's a, it's a motivator to go, righto, this is the hard day, keep going. And on Wednesdays, I'll de- generally do two to three flights in the aircraft, which are just shakedown flights uh, and maybe testing some new items that we've uh, with you for uh, for going fast. Thursdays, um, Thursdays typically... Um, some more briefs, uh, you know, getting all of the safety briefs for the track, going on a track walk, going all around it and looking at it, and uh, maybe one more test flight in the aircraft. And then Friday is where it all kicks into gear, and that's where we um, we do uh, two flights on the Friday, which is in the track. A lot of data and like a lot of pre-briefing with uh, with my team about what are we what are we the objectives for the day. So we write down every day our objectives and uh, what are we looking to test in the track. And the objective is that by Friday night, we've, we've tested every every line and every angle in the track and every setup of the aircraft so that we then sit down on Friday night and we go through what is the perfect line and what are the contingencies for, for the line, uh, for weather and, and uh, wind. Saturday is a uh, game on. So uh, it's one more training session in the uh, in probably about midday. And then we're into uh, qualifying in the afternoon, which for this year has points for qualifying as well. So it is a race. And then Sunday is uh, Sunday is the big one. That's where it all counts, and this is where you've got to keep your mindset correct because everything you've done in the lead up, when the lead up is ten years, comes down to this is where the this is this is race day, and you're often quite tired at race day from the amount of flying, your high G flying you've been doing, you know, the, a bit of jet lag, um, and you've got to keep your focus that uh, you know sleep tomorrow, sleep tomorrow. Today today's where it counts. Stay motivated, sleep tomorrow. You go out there on your race. Um, and then after the race, it's uh, really uh, enjoy enjoy the journey, enjoy the celebration. That uh, was you know regardless of position, just you know celebrate the, the, the team that you all did a great job in, a, in an amazing sport. And then Monday's back on an airline and fly home. Sounds like you're very uh, routine based, and I know military aviation is similar. Did you learn that from military flying, or is there anything else that that helped from your military background to what you do right now? Yeah, it's it's it is really down to the military stuff. Um, I started racing and was fortunate enough to find myself a, a great uh, sports psychologist who had worked with a lot of Olympic gold medalists and things. She was ex Air Force as well, and uh, and the first thing she said was, you know, I went and said, oh, I need you to teach me sports psychology, and she said, you already know sports psychology. It's just that they don't they don't call it sports psychology in the military. She said, sports psychology is learning from the military. So, you know, the military has known about it for thousands of years, you know, with having soldiers get up and follow a routine, you know, get up, have a shave. And then when you're going somewhere, you route march so that you're all, you're all as part of a team and, and you're not worrying about, you know, who you're talking to or what you're doing. It's like, well, my job is to march. And uh, she said, that's, that's followed through all the way through to what I did in fighters, you know, that every morning I'd get up at the same time, have a shave and uh, go to work. I'd be a morning briefing at this time. You all do the exact same things. And even going to the flying, you know, the briefing, the, the signing out of the books, the auth brief, uh, putting all your gear on and starting the aircraft done exactly the same way every time. She said, that's called routine, but it's but that's what sports psychology is learning uh, is the important thing. So that's what I took into it. Uh, and the first year I was racing, I did quite well, you know, using, using that philosophy. But I had some, I had some people, um, you know, basically team members say, hey, you're too regimented. You got to, you got to, you know, we're not in the military anymore. You got to ease off. So in the second year, I tried to back off that regimented process and just go with the flow a bit more to try and relax a little bit more. 
my second year in racing was disastrous. Um, and and the the main thing, yeah, you know, the main lesson out of it was that I have to. I'm a routine guy, and if I'm not following the routines, the um, the process fails. And if the process fails, um, my my mindset is incorrect, my habit patterns are incorrect, and the results will be incorrect. So, yeah, off the second year of racing, we just readapted to, hey, let's go back to being full routine. And if the team can't handle it, um, you probably need to find a new team for yourselves rather than me change my way so that uh, the team likes it. Right. Yeah. I've talked about sports psychology on, on this podcast. When I box at the Air Force Academy, it was in Colorado Springs, right next to where the U.S. Olympic Training Center is. And uh, one time they brought sports psychologists and they talked about visualization, being in the present moment, and uh, self-talk, I would say, are the, the three biggest takeaways I, I got from that. It really helped out in boxing, and uh, I've tried to use it in, in flying. What are some, some things that, that you work on with the sports psychology? Uh, it's exactly as you just said. You know, it's, um, it's, uh, first thing is being in the moment. and I think I think routine is a subset of that. Um, so you need to have routine to be in the moment. And um, the reason you want to be in the moment is that it removes stress and increases focus. You only get stressed if you're worried about what you have done or you're worrying about what's going to happen. If you can focus on what you're doing right now, you can, even in a very, very high-stress environment, you can be at zero stress while executing. And um, the only way you can get into that zone is to have very thorough routines set in place. Because if you're, if you haven't got good routines, you know, you know, winding it back to a bit more of a simple situation, if you don't have a good routine for doing a pre-flight of an aircraft, as you're rolling down the runway, you can be thinking, did I put the fuel cap on correctly, or did I did I check the oil? I can't remember. Um, whereas if you've got fantastic routines and you back yourself that's not even a question so and same same you're taking off thinking of the future going ah i didn't really check the weather uh, on route i didn't check the the no tams whether the airfield's got anything wrong with it at, at the destination because i didn't have good routines if you've had good routines and you know that you're absolutely guaranteed you've done the fuel and the oil correctly you know you've checked your weather and no tams at the destination you're rolling down the runway taking off focusing on i'm taking off on a plane i'm focusing on this so that's the um that that's the, the whole thing of you know process and routine leads to living in the 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 environment visualization absolutely essential um especially for when you're doing complex and rapid rapid items uh, you've got to visualize both how you do something but you also have to visualize yourself being successful which is more the self-talk side of things as well as just making sure that you you back yourself and say, I, I have put in the effort. I am good enough to win. And when I do win, it's not going to be a surprise to me. Because if you're if you're not confident that you can win, uh, every time you're getting close, you're going to get nervous that oh, I'm not sure I'm ready for this. I mean, what what if, what if, what if you come out of the moment and you stop um you start getting stressed, you stop focus and you don't win. If you visualize the fact and self-talk that you are good enough to to win, as you're getting closer, you shrug your shoulders and go, Yep, as planned. Is there anything else you do to uh, stay mentally conditioned and physically conditioned? I know for me, staying mentally conditioned, I, I've started meditating and that's helped out quite a bit. And I added that to my morning routine. Is there anything like that that, that you do on the mental side and then the physical side? Um, yeah. So yeah, physic- physically, it's, you know, it's um, stay current uh, in the aircraft. So, you know, I'm, because there is a physical side of my sport for uh, pulling G. So, is doing you know doing a lot of you know keeping the, the body fat down keeping the core strength up you know there's a number of ways to be doing that lots of routines for the gym work so i won't get into details there but i need to stay on top of that all the time uh and mind and body is connected so uh if i'm not if i'm not in doing what i need to do physically my brain starts to to play up on me and i start i start getting angry with myself and i start uh, getting disappointed in myself so uh, i i really do find a need to stay physically fit um so that my my mind is is well is is happy that i'm i'm putting the effort on on the um the mental side of things is yeah i i do some meditation i definitely meditate on the mornings i'm racing where i just i'll lie there and calm myself right down slow my breathing down slow my pulse down um get my all my uh, my body limbs nice and heavy just complete relaxation and then just basically have you know 
just clearing thoughts that uh, you know it's a uh, there's no stress it's just a sport and I'm you know just make sure I enjoy it make sure that I appreciate appreciate that I get to do this sport all those little things and and basically pull any any performance based scenarios out of my brain you know I, I I'll encourage myself that I can win leading up to the race but on race morning the last thing I'm thinking about is winning because that adds stress all I'm thinking about is uh, cool, calm, and collected, and uh, yeah, appreciation for getting to do um, this amazing sport. And then that means that every time I'm going into the track, I'm like, "Yeah, I can't wait to do this. Here we go." As opposed to, "Oh, if I make a mistake, I'm going to get kicked out, and I won't win." And I think one thing people have a tough time appreciating is uh, how physically demanding flying jets are, or I'm sure flying race planes like like you do. You're pulling up words of twelve Gs. What is that like compared to to military flying? Um, the G is different to military flying. In in the military, um, you pull much less G. You know, um, you know, has um, been twelve. I've been to fourteen G in my plane. It's comfortable. Wow. I've not been there. Um, yeah, and a Hornet, you know, in perspective is seven and a half G. The difference is uh, a fighter. You can be at you know, realistically a fighter. You can be maybe at six G in a high speed uh, turning engagement. You can be there for you know, 60 seconds if it's a, you know, if it's a high speed fight, you know, two circle shooting across the circle type fight. So you've got to be able to maintain, you know, a G strain for a long duration. You know, 60 seconds is a long time to be under G. Uh, whereas say so you've got to learn to breathe. You've got to learn to operate your systems. You've got to learn to move your head and your body, et cetera. So you don't injure yourself under G. In the race plane, we're going to 12 G, um, but we're only on it for about three, maybe four seconds maximum. And so that means that I don't have to learn to breathe under G. Uh, I just do one cycle of a really, really good G strain uh, and I don't have to move my head. I don't have to operate anything. I do operate stuff when I'm under G, but not as complex as trying to um, trying to slave a missile to my helmet mounted sight, then look over my shoulder and uh, uncage it on another aircraft and take a shot. Uh, I'm not doing anything like that. I'm just basically flying the aircraft, monitoring the systems while I'm under G and then it's off again. So you know, overall, I actually find the G in a in the race planes is easier than the fighters because um, it's just one hit at a time. It's brace up, huge amount of G, a huge strain, come off, take a big breath, calm yourself down, keep going. And can you talk to a race overview of of how long it lasts and how many turns they generally have? Yeah, there's um yeah each each run in the track is about sixty seconds. Um. The, there's probably about, um, on average, about 15 to 16 gates in a in a run through the track. So, which means we're we're at a gate about every three to four seconds. And you start off at uh, you know, the maximum speed to start is 200 knots. If you're at 201 knots, you get a time penalty. If you're at 202 knots, you're disqualified. If you um, every uh, every knot that you're slow from 200 knots, though, means that you're going to be slower into the track you know so start speed is critical so we'll enter the track you know i'll try and enter the track at 200.5 knots and we've got systems in the plane audio and visual cues to help me sit at 200.5 knots so it's there's a lot of focus and concentration going just going into the track uh once you're through the start gate then it's wide open throttle and accelerating into the first gate um and then um i so say typically it's two laps through a track Typically, each lap's the same, but often, you know, sometimes it won't be. Sometimes there might be a variation in the track for the second lap. But it's all about, you know, effectively the first lap is trying to fly the shortest distance possible while being super smooth. So it's a compromise of maintaining your energy while not flying big wide circles. So still going up towards 10G, but but not snatching the aircraft to get there. So being nice and smooth and trying to keep the energy on the plane. And the second lap, you start being a bit more aggressive with the aircraft for the purpose of cutting every single corner you can. You know, we're, we're winning and losing races by less than 0.1 of a second these days. Uh, so, you know, at 200 knots, 0.1 of a second is, is 10 metres or, you know, 30 feet. So the track is about, you know, call it about uh, three miles long, three to, you know, three to four miles long, and you've got to save 30 feet of uh, a track distance over a track of three to four miles. So. Uh, it's um, it's imperative that you go and trim those little bits, but it's also imperative that you don't slow the aircraft down pulling too much G on the first lap. So what would you say some of your strengths are compared to your competitors, and what are some things that you're continuing to improve? 
Well, my strengths, I, I think, um, basically all everything out of the military. So I've, I think I've got a good, a great team behind me, and the team has come from my my management uh, style and and my and, and my direction of how we're going to do it. I'd also say on the flying side of things, uh, my strength is knowing how to milk an aircraft. So you know, people see fighters and they think that you know to fly a fighter well, you know, it's got heaps of power and you can just sort of you know point it where you want to go and it and off it goes. Whereas you know, fighter pilots know that um, you've never got enough power. You, know, you always right. want more power. And to win to win a fight, you've actually got to milk every bit of of the aircraft of energy out of the aircraft to win a fight. And if you if you pull too hard when you shouldn't be pulling, you're going to lose. You're going to get shot. So that mentality uh, was, is a great thing to take into racing, and that's what I was talking about the first and second lap of knowing when to knowing when to um, to bleed the aircraft and and get it to turn versus knowing when to use the power to accelerate and or sustain a sustain a turn. Uh, and the third thing I think that's um, that I've got going for me is um, is stress management. Yeah. Um, the other guys, I'll watch them on race morning, and you know, there's there's twid, you know, fidd, you know, fiddling feet, fiddling fingers, and see people like doing some big breaths and everything. It's like, oh, they're nervous. I I get I get slight nerves, I get slight butterflies, but I I don't get nervous. And and I think where that comes down to is if I start getting nervous, all I say to myself is, no one's shooting at me. I've got nothing to worry about, and um, and it just keeps me well grounded that you know I have been shot at in a plane. Well, this is um this is nowhere nowhere near as bad as that. So just uh just stay calm and relax. Whereas other guys are like, this is the this is the biggest thing they've ever done, and um and and they they talk themselves out of having a great day. Yeah, I think those nerves go back to the sports psychology. I I heard something the other day that every great thing that you remember probably has come after getting those butterflies in your stomach. And thinking back, that's that's pretty much the same thing for uh, for myself. Oh, for sure. And uh, yeah, my sports psychology says um, butterflies in the stomach is the reward for being about to be doing something fantastic. So she said, don't, don't hate those butterflies. Um, embrace them and go, hey, I've got butterflies. I'm, I'm about to win a race. Yeah, woo, let's go. So are there any challenges uh, talking to your team? Any challenges that you've had to overcome since you've been racing for the last 10 years? Oh, yeah, constant challenges daily. Um you know, I've uh, I've crashed a plane that we had to uh, we had to recover from. I've um, you know I've, I've had team members that I've had to fire. I've had um, I've had um, team members that have left with no notice. Um, I've unfortunately had a team member die between races, uh, killed in a plane crash. I've had um, I've had uh, competitors, you know, friends. You know, all the competitors were were fantastic bunch of friends, and I've had probably four of them die over my career in racing uh let alone flying fighters um so there's there's a huge amount of things that you're, you're dealing with all the time you know people see that people see the shiny glossy side for a, a two-hour tv um two-hour tv show or if you're at the race live you know two hours of racing just watching us go flat out through the track where nothing much goes wrong apart from you might get a penalty and it's like that's in the big scheme of things that's not a, a huge thing but they don't see in the background what's going on uh, with with all the management side of things and the you know the the fatigue levels and the families and the and um and people's health so yeah there's there's always there's always something to be dealing with and it's it's just a matter of being able to compartmentalize when you need to and you know focus focus when you need to focus and then um and then deal with other stuff when you get a moment and then finally uh scheduling scheduling recovery times so that uh, you can you can uh gather yourself mentally and physically before you do it all again yeah, how do you uh, manage being kind of the CEO of your team as well as being the the star player? I, I think that you're in an extremely unique spot. Most racing sports, the the star racer, all they have to do is focus on on racing. So how do you how do you manage that? And then how do you kind of shed some of those responsibilities as you get closer to to race day? Yeah, it, it is unique, and that's a lot of people don't uh, don't pick up that little subtlety that. Um, you know, most people that are professional athletes, they're a professional athlete, and that is their job. So, every you know, every moment of their day is either preparing for their sport or recovering from their sport, and uh, you know, letting off steam. So, I, I am I'm doing that, but also um, you know, running the business and managing the team. You know, if if something's not going right uh, at the race, I've got to make sure it's very clear in my head that I'm just being the pilot um 
So, you know, if something breaks, I can't sit there and go, I wonder how much that's going to cost. You know, what, what are the, what are the logistics uh, associated with the fact that that's broken now? I've got to go, huh, that sucks. When's the plane going to be fixed so I can fly it again? I've really got to make sure I keep that mentality. And, and the way we do that is um, we, we brief into the, uh, into the race where I'll, you know, I'll brief the team on what, where we're at and what we're trying to do. And I'll, I'll maintain the leadership on that because it is my team. But as soon as we get to the race, um, when everyone's on site, we then sit down and I'll go through a, a long brief about you know, what we've learned, rehash from what we've learned from the last race, what we're aiming to do at this race, what we're aiming to test. Uh, and then I'll hand over the team. And um, I have a team manager on site who then runs the um, the flow of the team. Um, I have a technician who is his job's just making sure the plane is always where it needs to be and it's always safe, it's always ready, it's always being developed. And I have a tactician who who debriefs all the lines and the speeds. And my job at race at, at the race is to be just the pilot. And uh, it took me a while to learn to do that because in the military you don't hand over that. You know, if I'm the CEO of a squadron, I don't I don't come up to flying time and go right. I'm no longer the CEO. I'm still the CEO while I'm flying. So I tried to have that mentality, but it didn't work. And um, and actually that that uh, that led to you know when I crashed my plane, I was I was trying to be the CEO of the squadron at the same time as racing the plane and. Um, and my focus levels were completely destroyed and, uh, and you know, ended up having a, the consequences were a plane crash. So it took me a while to learn it, um, but now we're doing it. Um, my team my team run, run seamlessly. And the bonus of it is that um, you, know, you only get the best performance out of, um, out of, out of people when you give them the, the responsibility and authorization to, to go and do their job to the best of their own ability without having to always be second-guessing what's the boss thing. So when we go to a race now, Everyone knows their job and they go and do it and I have full trust in them and they have full trust in me that I trust them. And um, it really does mean that I can just focus on racing. And if the plane's not fast for some reason or something's wrong with it, I'm not sitting there as a team man and going, man, we're going to lose points for this. I'm just sitting there as the, as the, race, as the race driver going, well, I'm going to see what I can do with it anyway. Can you talk to that time that you, had to, that you ended up crashing a plane? Yeah, for sure. Um, basically, it was the second year of, uh, of racing, and that's the one I said where I tried to adjust my, tried to adjust my own routines and procedures to to demilitarize myself to the point where I basically wasn't following any routines and procedures. I was kind of just walking up to the plane and getting in to go flying. We also had a few other things going on at the same time where you know I, I was um, I was uh, physically unwell. I had a I had a head cold. Uh, I I had not uh, been sleeping all that well uh, because I hadn't been having routines. I was yeah waking up in the middle of the night stressing about everything because I was no longer following the routines and the disciplines that I'd I'd previously done. Um, we'd had three team changes that year because of um, um, certain you know, certain events that had happened, um, including at this particular race, we'd had a, an, another team change, and so I was basically being the CEO and teaching everyone else how to do their job and telling them where to be and how to do it not sleeping that well, not putting any focus into my own flying because, you know, flying the flying is the easy bit. You know, I'll, I'll just get up there and do it. The hard bit was keeping the team on rails to the point where I was strapping into the aircraft to go to qualifying and uh, someone came up with a phone and said, oh, it's the sponsorship department. They want to talk to you. So I'm sitting in the plane on a mobile phone talking to the sponsorship department before I start the engine to go and race in the track. And I didn't think anything of it at the time until I got airborne and then had this sudden realisation, hey, I'm airborne, it's quali. I haven't put any thought into uh, into this um, apart from just the last flight I did, and I actually remember thinking, when I get back, I'm going to change. I'm going to change this because this is this is awful. This is this. I've put myself in a terrible situation. I then crashed the plane on that flight. Um, so um, I the the crash was basically I um, I got myself offline coming into a gate where it was basically I gave myself a square corner, an impossible corner to stay in the track, but I tried to do it. And I tried to do it while looking over my shoulder, which is um, which is not a great way to fly a plane at thirty feet, and because you lose the feel and the you know the the, the flight path. And I g stalled my aircraft, which rolled it um, slightly under its back at thirty feet. Uh, I was able to recover the aircraft to wings level, but I hit the water uh, while I was doing so uh, and bounced. Uh, I was able to regather it and and um, and fly uh, fly away. Um, so I didn't stay where I, where in the water. I was able to fly it away like a rock skimming uh, but had done some significant damage to the aircraft so i was able to yeah at that point i re-engaged my military side went right from here it's all military even on that the rest of that flight you know i 
I did a, hand, a controllability check. Um, I got myself into a bailout situation. I don't need to bail out. I then did a glide, you know, big, basically high key to low key to, to bring the aircraft in after doing a controllability check and shut down and, um, and yeah, basically got away with it unharmed and the aircraft was repaired. But um, it, it really came down to me having a lack of focus on what I was doing and that came about through not having a not having a team um, around me that knew what they were doing, not through their own fault, just because it kept changing, and me um, me focusing on being a team manager rather than a pilot in a high in a dynamic flying environment. What was that like when you G stalled your aircraft? I've I've put an aircraft out of control before, and it was that it actually wasn't scary. You know, it was pretty interesting. Uh, pretty much everything in my life kind of went away and I was just focused on recovering the aircraft. But then uh, once I got back on the ground that night, it was kind of, kind of hit me that, you know, I could have, uh, you know, had to punch out and potentially die. Is it, is that similar to what you felt? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I've, I've been in a, quite a few situations where, you know, I, I, I could have ended up dead and, um, and it's always the same as you don't get scared during the, uh, during the event because you and that you know, some people will throw their hands in the air and go, "Oh my God, I'm going to die," um, and they probably will because they're not taking action. Uh, I think it's definitely something you're taught in the military is that the the harder and the more stressful the, the situation is, the more you, the more your focus kicks in and you and you compartmentalize your life to. In the end, it is I have to fly this plane out of here, and you're not thinking about you're not thinking about your family, you're not thinking about friends. A lot your life isn't flashing before your eyes. Um, and you get temporal distortion. Light, you know, time slowed down. Uh, my my incident took 0.6 of a second from the G stall through to coming back out of the water. It was 0.6 of a second. In in that 0.6 of a second, uh, it's like it was half an hour. I've I've got still, you know, this was 10 years ago now. I've still got very clear memories of all the thought processes that went through my brain about what my options were, what was happening that during the impact into the water assessing okay what's hitting what's the consequence of that hitting going to be uh am i able to fly away and then as soon as it is flying okay what what are my options now i'm you know i'm either going to go straight back into the water because it's just a bounce it's about to flip i'm either going to fly away but the engine might stop and it all just slowed down so much that uh, you know still very clear thoughts there and it wasn't until i landed and then the adrenaline kicked in and started getting a little bit of shakes and then it was that night when you go Geez, I uh, yeah, I was I was pretty close there to uh, to wiping myself out, and that's that's where you get um that's where you get a bit sad about the whole situation. But during the event itself, um, and all the way to putting the aircraft in the ground, there was no fear. Um, it was just focus. Did it take a while to to kind of get back in the zone again, or was your next flight good to go? Uh, I'd say it probably took about one flight to um you know, to to get right back in the zone like the first first time i ran in the track again which was only two weeks later um you know i was it, i did i remember going to the chicane thinking okay just don't do anything stupid matt and and then i landed and i thought okay i've got to get i've got to get past those thoughts because they're interrupting thoughts um i've got to get past them otherwise i can't race anymore and so i went back out there again the next flight and just just went out with full confidence that you know I, i've learned from my mistake and you, you've also got to say to yourself um that you know because i've done that it doesn't mean that i'm a bad pilot it actually probably means that now i'm the safest pilot in the track because you know i've learned from it it's happened and i've learned from it um so be you know be confident to just go out there and fly fly well again you know obviously we had to find out what the causes were and fix them which we did and the main cause of that was you know my mental focus so we changed we changed our setup and our routines um in the, internally and that's where we started going right uh, back to routines, back to process, and I'm just the pilot while we're at the track, we put that in place and then everything was fine again and then racing was fine. So um, if we hadn't have done that, I don't think I would have recovered to uh, to flying in the track well again because it would have been always in the back of my mind, I hope that doesn't happen again. Whereas if you've debriefed it, you've dug right down and you've addressed the root evil, um, once you're confident that you've actually found every single thing that was a contributor and you've, you've addressed the root evil, which then covers all the bases, um, you can then execute with that, with a sense of ease, knowing that, well, we've, we've, we've fixed what was broken and I don't have to worry about it happening again. So last month I woke up and I was reading the news and I was surprised to see that the Red Bull Air Race series was 
canceled. Were you surprised by that? And uh, now that you have this really well-oiled machine, what do you think is going to happen next? <laughs> yeah, we, we were surprised like everyone else. Um, uh, I guess, yeah, it, to tell you the truth, like when I got that news, it was very similar to um, to my accident in as far as mental state is concerned, just, just on a longer timeline. So, um, you know, the first, the first few days were, you know, thinking of contingencies and options. Okay, what are we going to do financially? You know, what's the t- what? What am I going to do with the team? How are we going to how are we going to steer the business to make sure the business doesn't um, you know go bust? All these things, and my brain just went onto overdrive. And then we went to a race about a week later, and um, that was a grounding experience to go right. We're at a race, and and at the race, it was kind of like not nothing had changed, and it was good to just to get back into that living in the moment mentality and just race planes. Um, since I've come back, uh, I am also, you know, I've bought, also been pretty busy with the business we have at home. And what I've what I've been able to say in my brain is that it's it's still all systems go. You know, we've still got a number of races to go, but in August there are no races. So August this year is where I'm going to sit down with you know and do some long term business planning about what are we going to do. And um, and just the fact that I've put that line in the sand means that I'm not worrying about it while I'm yet right now going to a race. It's like, well, you know what? August is when I worry about that, compartmentalize it, and now I can focus on this. What do I actually think is going to happen? Uh, you know, you, it, it's hard to tell, but uh, I think you know it's it, it's a pretty successful um, aviation event. Um, you know, as far as aviation events are concerned, you know the the Red Bull Air Race is uh, is pretty well known. Yeah, and it's. It's pretty well followed, and we've actually been able to generate some amazing things um, in both motivating people to get into aviation, uh, but also safety systems, um, telemetry for aircraft, all that sort of stuff has been quite phenomenal the way we've developed it. And the race teams, um, every single race team out there's 14 race teams, and they're all super professional and, and have a ready-made kit. So um, my, my gut feel is something's going to come from it. Um, you know, it, who knows what the format will be? Uh, I think it'll be a recognisable, recognisable um, in the type of flying and the aircraft that are doing it, and and some, if not all, maybe maybe a few teams. Um, but there'll be something that starts up from this because it's it's proven that it is popular, and um, it it just needs to um, you know it just needs to be restarted and maybe a slightly different format. Who knows? But uh, I think I think something will come of it, and in the meantime. Um, we're just going to keep uh, working on what we're doing uh, for winning the next two races if we can, and um, and then after September when the last race happens, we'll then we'll then uh, put our plan we've put together in August, put our plan in place, and then uh, keep our ear to the ground, uh, ready to uh, ready to stand up for uh, something new. So since you've built this team pretty much from the ground up, are you excited about potentially someday bringing in another pilot to keep this kind of machine perpetually going? Well, that that was the game plan uh, until the announcement that racing was stopping. The game plan was that I was going to race for another, really only another year or two myself, um, and then be putting a pilot into my team. So, um, you know, we're in the transition phase. You know, we saw the we saw the air race was in a transition phase, and that's got something to do with why they're why while they're why they're stopping is because it's reaching the end of its life being run the way it is, which is the pilots run their teams it's in now in a transition phase where as the pilots retire they've got all the corporate knowledge they need to then employ a pilot to be in the team which is how most motorsports work and that transition it was requiring a lot of work and a lot of thought to to make it work so it was a financially viable option um but that that was the plan and um it still is the plan you know if something comes along Again, I'll, I might race for another year or two if it comes back again, um, just to make sure that the ball is rolling and uh, you know we're using my experience to get it going. But then keep the team up and running and uh, and bring a pilot in to um, to replace me. And where's the best place for people to follow along with with the team as well as follow along with you? Um, yeah, our the best place to follow with us is uh, just through all the social media. Our website madhorracing.com. Uh, and also our Facebook uh, for Matt Hall Racing and Instagram and all those normal sorts of things. Um, yeah, I've got a full professional team that run those those items, and they they also let people know. Um, you know, you can follow what we're doing and where we are, but they also let everybody know where you can view the race on race day. Well, Matt, I really want to 
thank you for taking time to to sit down with me. This is really fascinating, and I hope to uh, someday fly with you. That sounds great, mate. They just need a two seat F thirty five, and I'll be there in a heartbeat. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to review it. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Justin Fighter Pilot. I've also started a monthly newsletter where I send out a few useful or insightful things that have helped me over the last month. You can sign up by going to professionalsplaybook.com and clicking on the red subscribe button. The link to the newsletter is also in the show notes. Today's episode was brought to you by Bremont, over-engineered watches for professionals. In the last few years, Bremont has taken over as the fighter pilot's watch. Their combination of precision, quality, and customer service is unmatched. You can see all of their watches by going to bremont.com. Again, thanks for listening. I'll talk to you in two weeks.